0: Welcome to Reinventing Professionals, a podcast hosted by industry analyst Ari Kaplan, which shares ideas, guidance, and perspectives from market leaders shaping the next generation of legal and professional services.
1: This is Ari Kaplan, and I'm speaking today with Chris Osborne, the co-founder of Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences, a national provider of continuing education and professional development programs. Hi, Chris. How are you?
0: I'm doing great, Ari. How are you today?
1: I'm doing really well. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. So tell us about your background and the genesis of real-time creative learning experiences.
0: So interestingly enough, this was not something that I had on my radar when I went to law school. I don't think I remember hearing in law school that there was such a thing as continuing legal education or that you could be involved with it as a job. What happened is I was practicing law I was a litigator here in Charlotte. I had been with a couple of small firms and clerked for a judge, and then I ended up in a medium-sized firm where I had been there probably about six or seven years and was starting to just kind of get out into the bar and the community and happened to join this committee of the Mecklenburg County Bar called the Lawyers Support Committee. I wasn't sure what they did or what they were about, but it sounded kind of interesting, and I was at least willing to check it out. What does it mean? Are they supporting one another? I have no idea. Got there, and my first impression was it's kind of a bunch of unusual people, very different from anybody I had interacted with, but they were a committee that had been put together to try to help lawyers address the problem of mental health and well-being. There had been a rash of some suicides in the Charlotte area in the early to mid-90s, and they had formed this committee, served as a local, so we did have at that time. I joined this committee, and I'm thinking, okay, maybe I can learn something from these folks. I don't know. And it turned out that one of the things we were trying to do as a committee were uh, proactively help lawyers actually think about mental health and wellness. So this is about 2004, 5, 6, somewhere in there. But one of the things they wanted us to do was come up with some CLE programming that would address that same goal. And North Carolina was actually one of the first states to require one credit hour of mental health every three years for every lawyer. Some other states are starting to do that now, but North Carolina was actually one of the first out in front of that. And so in the quest for programming that would meet that need, some of us on the committee were trying to think of things we could come up with. And I met this guy named Michael Kahn, who had been a practicing lawyer, but had decided it wasn't for him. And he got a degree in counseling and he was now working as a mental health therapist but he stayed involved in bar activities was still kind of connected to lawyers well i saw that he had done some groups using movies to kind of get people talking about different things and working through things that they were wrestling with or thinking about and i had had some training that was kind of effective in that same way where some movies just really unlocked some insights for me and connect me with some things or help me realize some things and understand some things on a different level and so we got the idea Gosh, I wonder if we could use that same kind of educational format and call it a CLE and get CLE credit for it. And the CLE director at the time, a woman named Lisa Armanini, was super receptive to that idea. She's like, please give me something, anything different because we have to get this hour. Nobody wants to. They dread it. And so we put together a program, and I think the first time we did it was 2007, and we found a movie called Changing Lanes that shows Ben Affleck playing a young lawyer who's basically having a train wreck of a day and ends up making some really, really, not just questionable, but just bad ethical decisions. But the movie's a great study in sort of how he got there and what is motivating his choices and what's leading him to think, well, here's a good idea. I'll try to kill a guy or whatever. And so basically we tried with this one first program was the genesis of it all. I don't remember how we came up with the name Real Time, but we did this first program kind of using the movie to explore why do good lawyers go bad and looking at it in a more complex way with a little bit more nuance to it. And it turned out to be a hit and people really appreciated it and responded to it. And we did a few more programs for the bar a few more times. And Lisa really encouraged this guy to take this on the road. You should start meeting some people in this organization called ACLIA. And here's some other contacts, and about by 2010, I like, okay, let's do this, And inform me, and we're doing it more regularly and trying to find more ways to do it. So, long answer to your short question.
1: What types of programs do you offer?
0: We offer programs basically focused on anything that deals with either what some people call soft skills or Behavioral change. We are not the people who are going to come in and tell you substantive law, changes in the substantive law. Here's the newest information on how to set up a will or trust. There are other people better suited to that. What we really formed around and loved to explore to start with was the idea of ethical decision-making. So when we do an ethics and professionalism presentation, we can go into any state or Canadian province or Australia, and we can come in and present what we're talking about because we're really aiming for a discussion, and it's a live interactive discussion, of the human behavior dynamics of ethical decision-making, of professionalism, whatever it is. So our program started focused on either getting ethics credit, professionalism credit. At the time we started, you couldn't actually say the word stress in the title of a CLE program, or you wouldn't get credit from the local bar. Nowadays, there's a bit more of a push for wellness programming. But back then, that's what we wanted to do. But we had to tie it to ethics to kind of make sure we got credit. So we had to sort of smuggle it in. So we started off mainly ethics and professionalism, wellness and substance abuse awareness as the core Over the years, we've also added in the same format and the same principles really work in addressing diversity and inclusion, in preventing sexual misconduct, not just sexual harassment liability, and in trying to deal with toxic workplace behavior. And people, in the case of lawyers, either judges, clients, opposing counsel, or colleagues that kind of get under our skin and drive us a little bit nuts and make us want to start thinking about doing things or finding ourselves doing things that we might not do otherwise. So any Anything around law firm culture, we're digging more into the professional development realm as well. Again, some of those soft skills and emotional intelligence type things that lawyers haven't always paid the most attention to.
1: That's a diverse array of programs. What connects them all?
0: One is the multidisciplinary approach where we're bringing insights and thoughts and useful skills from the counseling realm, like self-awareness, mindfulness, pausing to breathe. I didn't think breathing really made much difference back when I first heard about that kind of idea, but actually paying attention to how you're breathing and what you're doing to either calm or to excite your fight-or-flight response, your stress response, things like that. A second piece of it that I think is unique for us is the power of stories and storytelling, whether it's an original film that we've made or another film that somebody else made, or just getting people in the room, telling for instances, telling stories about things that they've encountered, either they've encountered bias, or they've encountered stress, or they've encountered somebody making inappropriate advances or inappropriate comments in the workplace, whatever it is, when the stories are told and depicted one way or another, There's a powerful connection that's made, and we are always aiming for motivating people at the heart level, at the decision-making level, not just providing content, providing information. So I'd say that the interdisciplinary approach, the emphasis on narrative and whether there's a story that we're interacting with or we're hearing one another's stories, and then the aiming for the behavioral approach, the heart approach, providing people with practical tools that they can actually implement. And they don't have to make these wholesale grand crazy changes like I'm gonna start running marathons or doing yoga every day or anything like that. We try to aim for simple things that you can deploy right at your desk, right in the middle of a meeting or a mediation or a trial or a phone call, whatever, practical takeaways. The last piece I would think that that unites what we do and sets us apart from what other people do is The idea of connectedness. If we are struggling or not doing the best things or not making the best choices or just want to thrive better and want to do better at what we're doing, trying to fix that ourselves isn't always going to work that great. I think it's similar to the idea I know you've promoted at one point in time with business development, law accountability. Love that concept because... It gets somebody else involved, meaning we're, we're sort of connected to somebody else and we help one another to try to tackle this problem. Because the toughest problems we tend to think are better tackled when you've got other people helping you out, supporting you, following up with you and saying, hey, have you done that? You were going to try to do that. Did it work? How's it going? What's hard? What's easy? What benefits are you seeing? That's going to be a common thread in whatever kind of program we do.
1: How has the delivery of continuing legal education changed since you first began offering presentations?
0: I tell you, we had a moment of panic when we got to our first AcLIA annual meeting. I think it was in the fall of 2011. It was in Boston, and we got there, and everybody was talking about, oh, the future of CLE is online and video on demand and all this. And we're like, oh, no we're dinosaurs. What's going to happen is live CLE just going to disappear. And we were panicked for a moment, but we met enough people and we kept talking to enough people to see that as much as there is a push towards online delivery, and there are people who want to just be able to sit at their computer and run a program and get their credit, and maybe they're paying attention or maybe they're working at the same time, but there is going to be a growing demand for that, especially younger generations. They've got YouTube videos for everything, so consuming video is so constant. What we've been thankful to see, though, is two things. One, that people still will get together for a good program and for a good conference. We've been fortunate to present for a number of organizations around the country that still have a good solo and small firm conference, a good annual meeting where they do provide good content but also a chance for lawyers to get in the room together and see one another and network and build connections that either lead to new jobs or lead to new work or collaboration or referral sources, whatever. And so there's not always as much of that I think as we would like, but it's not dead. And we have several clients who like to have a CLE followed by a happy hour, just to get folks together to try to restore or maintain some kind of community among lawyers. The other piece we've found is the online learning is such a driver. There's so many people, disruptors, and traditional legal companies like West putting money and resources into developing online delivery programs, online delivery learning management systems that actually are functional, more affordable. The technology keeps getting better and better and works better and better so that you can deliver decent quality content through a video format. Thankfully, there have been people who are trying to take, even if you're going to do something in a two-dimensional format, there are ways to make it still lively, interesting, not just one person talking for such a long time. Thankfully, there's those kind of changes that are happening. The technology is there, but people are still trying to figure out how we give a good educational experience even if we're confined to the small screen.
1: When did you realize that you wanted to do something other than practicing law?
0: I'd say that happened kind of sideways, sort of backwards. I kind of found myself doing it before I realized there was something I was doing. Literally, putting together these initial programs was just kind of a lark. Okay, I'm on this committee. Let's see what this is like. And I think it was probably, as we did the first one or two, I remember thinking, well, this is actually kind of fun. I actually like this as much, if not more, than actually being on my feet litigating. I like this teaching environment, and I realized it was different from presenting for a judge or summing up for a jury And I think the real crystallizing moment, though, was when I went to that Aclea conference and I met a guy there named Sean Carter, who uh, you may have had on the show here. He's he's a A mentor of mine for sure. Yeah, exactly. So I met Sean and Sean asked me a very powerful question. He said, so you've been doing this speaking thing a little while. Do you want to speak in order to be able to speak and present more? Or do you want to speak in order to be able to get more legal business? And I had thought about that because I had started realizing, oh, I could do a presentation here and there. I did something on construction law when I was practicing construction law. I did a presentation on tax law one time, property tax law. And I realized, if I was honest, the answer to his question was, well, I think I'd like to speak so that I can speak more. I think my heart is in that presentation process itself, and I think I've got more of a knack for it than I realized. And he just smiled and said, OK, then you dive in and you do it. And I think the combination of his encouragement and meeting the people at aclia meeting people who had been in law and were brilliant, smart, fantastic folks. But they had transitioned in some way to teaching, educating, presenting, and it was so collaborative. Everybody's sharing resources. I just had never experienced anything like that. The litigation world didn't function that way. And to the extent I was out marketing my litigation services, I'm trying to compete with other people and take them away. Hire me as your construction lawyer, which means you don't hire three other firms that might do a great job. I found in the CLE world collaboration and people encouraging one another and saying, yeah, I hope the South Carolina bar or somebody hires you and then hires me later. And it's not a zero-sum game. We're all in this together sharing resources and the bigger purpose of helping lawyers do their jobs better, function better. And so many people allied in that. I think once I met those people, it sort of was like, oh, I found my tribe. I didn't expect it, had no idea. And it turned out some of my favorite people to work with and have been and inspiration encouragement and, and mentors to me along the way
1: the list of individuals that sean carter has inspired is long and
0: grateful <laughs> it sure is it sure is
1: which skills from practicing law have translated well into your educational and entrepreneurial ventures
0: I was a litigator and am somewhat a litigator. I'm really more of a collaborative lawyer and a mediator now, but verbal communication, of course, being able to sort through a vast array of information, whether it's evidence or documents and crystallize what are the key points that I want a judge or jury to come away with. I would say that's a similar skill to what I've used in the educational space okay, there's a lot of good content out there. There's a lot of good ideas, suggestions on this. Certainly, I'm not the first person to ever think about or write about ethics or professionalism or any of the topics we addressed, but how do we distill that down to takeaway points that lawyers can hear and actually remember five minutes or maybe five days, maybe even five weeks after the program? How do we boil things down organizationally and for maximum effect. We're trying to create a learning experience. That's why we changed our name to Creative Learning Experiences. That's what CLE stands for for us now. It's trying to create an experiential process that maybe cements something in the brain. And so it's persuasion in a way, but it's a different kind of persuasion. I don't want you to just decide I'm right or rule for me. I want you to be thinking about this or talking about this with somebody else later. So the verbal skills, the writing skills, it's a different kind of writing. We write a lot of program descriptions, learning objectives, marketing copy, but I have loved all that stuff. It's been fun to actually study and think about and try to learn about marketing. That's probably the main thing from law practice that's translated over well, just sort of being able to distill information down and try to communicate it in a memorable way.
1: How do you see continuing legal education evolving?
0: technology is ubiquitous. Video is so easy to record. I think there is going to be more and more delivery of it in a macro level. What the concept of flipping the classroom that has sort of happened in education, it's gotten some inroads in CLE, even in traditional law schools like my own the University of Virginia, where people watch and absorb content in a video format, offline, They don't get together to do that. When we get together in an educational setting, we're doing something with what we've all watched or listened to in a podcast format or in an audio format. So many of us are going around with our iPhones, with our headphones on, we're listening and consuming stuff all the time. So I think CLE is going to do well to take advantage of that but realize that a lot of the real action also happens when we're together in a room and we're puzzling through what does that mean? How are we gonna do this differently? Particularly how are we gonna tackle thorny problems like access to justice, like diversity and inclusion? What are we going to actually do to take the knowledge that somebody can convey to us? And the collaboration to translate that into practice and into serving the people we serve is what's gonna be interesting. So I think you're gonna still see an evolution Of the video, the video content getting more sophisticated, the online delivery, the learning management systems getting better, the bandwidth delivery getting better, and hopefully still some creativity on the live side. I mean, what else can we do that makes it an experience and it makes it something where lawyers can double dip or triple dip and get some credit hours, but also do some networking, some marketing. So hopefully a lot of creativity still in both directions.
1: This is Ari Kaplan speaking with Chris Osborne, the co-founder of Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences, a national provider of continuing education and professional development programs. Chris, thanks so very much.
0: Ari, thanks so much. That was fantastic and fun. Enjoyed it immensely. Thank you for listening to the Reinventing Professionals podcast. Visit ReinventingProfessionals.com or AriKaplanAdvisors.com to learn more.